Marvin Goldfried is a distinguished professor of psychology at Stony Brook University, where he helped develop the graduate program in clinical psychology. He's the co-founder of the Society for the Exploration of Psychotherapy Integration. Alan Francis is a professor of psychiatry and chair emeritus at Duke and was chair of the DSM-4 task force. Marvin describes the evolution of his psychotherapy orientation as psychodynamic, behavioral, CBT, and eventually integrative. He practices, teaches, and supervises what works clinically using direct and indirect evidence base. Alan describes his approach to psychotherapy as whatever works or no one size fits all. He was trained and taught at the Columbia University Psychoanalytic Center, but remains equally interested in brief, supportive, cognitive, behavioral, interpersonal, and family therapies. Please enjoy this week's episode. Good morning and welcome to Talking Therapy. I'm here with Alan Francis. Good morning, Alan Francis. Hey, hey, Marvin. And myself, Marvin Goldfried. And we are going to talk today about assertiveness in therapy. Talk about kind of its history, its trajectory, why it disappeared, how it's reappearing in other ways, and then uh, depending upon how much time we have, uh, the uh, clinical uh, intervention procedures. I need permission from you, Alan, to begin. You don't need to permission. Be, more assertive. Be much more assertive, Marvin. <laughs> Touche. Okay. Um, <laughs> I, listen, I once w- once had lunch with Marshall Linehan and Dick McFall. He says in the height of assertiveness uh, training, and we were all doing research. And we were not getting weighted on by any any waiter because we were talking. And none of us were, were willing to call for a waiter for whatever reason. Maybe we're just too, too engrossed in the discussion. I, I can picture you being like that, Marvin, but I can't picture Marshall Linehan being anything but super assertive. Well, depends on what we mean by assertive. So let's talk about what we mean by assertive. Uh, it was in 19... 19- 49, there's there's probably a history that goes back to the Greeks or Romans, and I'm sure if if it did, you will inform me about it. But at least the earliest source uh, that I know was by Andrew Salter, who wrote a book, Conditioned Reflex Therapy, 1949. So this is pre-behavior therapy, um, certainly. and in a sense, it was a foundation of behavior therapy, or at least one of the, the foundations or threads. And what he said that he said, um, there are some people who are uh, just very inhibited personalities, and this creates problems, and we can teach them to become less inhibited. So it's kind of interesting. It was a, it was a clinical observation that I think holds true to this day. You know, I, I once did a Twitter poll and asked people, what percentage of your uh, patient population would you characterize as having assertiveness problems? And somewhere between, people said somewhere between half and three quarters of their population had assertiveness problems. We had um, a wonderful psychologist during my residency called Howard Hunt. And um, 
we we were working in a primarily psychodynamic um, model with most of our patients, but he had an enormous influence on many of us. And one of the things he said right from the beginning was that all of our patients had assertiveness problems. They wouldn't have been there otherwise. It was an inpatient unit, a long-term inpatient unit that encouraged people to be unassertive. And that one of the concrete things we could do that would be helpful to every patient we saw was to help them to become more assertive or to channel their assertiveness in a more useful way. So it was very much, this was in 1968. It was a powerful early influence on me. And of all the behavioral techniques, it's the one that makes the most common sense, is the easiest to teach, both to teach therapists and for therapists to teach patients. So it, it has always seemed to me to be an essential part of every therapist's toolkit. Yes. And in, in, in a sense, it's to a great extent, it's lost to CBT. The, the third, so-called third waves have washed it away. How do you account for that? Oh, let, let, let me get back into that. Um, um, basically, it's, it's the fault of people like you and, and other psychiatrists. Uh, who developed the DSM, but we'll, we'll come back to that. I mean, you were just following orders anyway. <laughs> I mean, unassertively. <laughs> but um, so, so what happened, just getting back to the historical roots, and, and uh, Wolpe and Lazarus also saw this as being very important in their early work on behavior therapy. And they said it's like relaxation. It could in reciprocally inhibit somebody's anxiety if they become more assertive. So conceptually, you know, the different explanations for it, and we can play around with different explanations, but the fact of the matter is that, that clinically it seemed to be relevant, and clinically it, it, it uh, seemed to work. And the research on it is very, very positive. So you have basic research where it's the relationship between unassertiveness and symptomatology. There is the relationship with anxiety. The less assertive the person is, the more anxious they are. Similarly, correlation with depression, self-efficacy, interpersonal effectiveness are all related. Moreover, interventions with anxious, depressed um, low self-efficacy patients, people who have interpersonal problems, interventions where the goal was to increase assertiveness, reduced this symptomatology. So it's, it's good research evidence. In addition, there's clinical observation. And I don't know the extent to which you've observed this in your own clinical work or supervision or training. Well, I, I don't recall ever treating anyone where this wasn't where assertiveness issues weren't an issue and um i don't recall ever training anyone where that didn't come up in the treatment so i see this almost as a universal with not something for just a, an isolated group of patients but assertiveness issues and sometimes it's just the uh, moderating assert people who are overly assertive and overly aggressive in their demanding this, moderating right. it. But I think that this is a universal, assertiveness is a universal human trait that people have problems with. And most therapies will have it be at least part of the therapy. And for some therapies, it'll be the major part. Yeah. And so I think that's an important point, to, that it's not only for submissive individuals, but individuals who are overly aggressive. 
And I, I think the term assertiveness is often misinterpreted as being on a single continuum of low assertiveness and the very high assertiveness is aggressiveness. But, but what you're saying is that it's something different from both submission and aggression. Uh, it's getting the person to speak up, do something they were afraid of doing that makes their life better. And learning how to shape the environment rather than just being shaped by it. And if you're overly aggressive, you're not going to shape the environment. You're going to turn it off. That's right. If you're, if you're overly aggressive, you don't get what you want. Often. Sometimes you do, but after a while it gets played out. Once people get wise to you. Uh, but if you're submissive, you don't get what you want either. So not getting what you want puts you at risk for all kinds of sentimentology, if, if you, we look at it uh, this way. Now, you asked, you know, why is it less popular? I attribute it to clinical trials. You see, it became very popular in the 70s. And what was going on in the 70s was the feminist movement. And women began to realize they were being too submissive. And there was all kinds of problems they were experiencing. And it was not a function of them specifically, but the environment that, that encouraged or discouraged them to be a certain way. So assertiveness training for women became very, very hot. There was the consciousness raising groups, which was increasing awareness, you know, talk about uh, the change process. There was the increasing awareness, oh, you feel that too? I thought it was just me. So maybe it's the environment that's doing this to us. And then it's, what are we going to do about this? Well, we need to speak up more. We need to do X. We need to do Y. We need to be more res respected for the things we do. We need to be able to do more things that we want to do, et cetera, et cetera. So assertiveness training for women. So it became a very hot topic in the 70s with lots and lots of research. And if you go and search in Psych Info, you find a lot of references to it. And then from the 80s onward, it drops off where it's hardly searched at all. Yeah, and you make an interesting point that one, one of the uh, awful side effects of DSM, well, two, two awful side effects, one that it focused attention on the individual at the expense of the group. So group therapy is much better than individual therapy for certain types of problems. And assertiveness is one of them. It's much easier to work with assertiveness problems in a group than it is individually. It gives you a real life kind of um, surrogate yeah. where people can learn to deal better with one another and, and um, assert themselves more. And DSM sort of killed group therapy. Group therapy had been reimbursed before. It stopped being reimbursed. Uh, group therapy training had been popular. It stopped being popular. But the focus on the individual prevented the uh, growth, the continued growth of both group and family therapy, because also assertiveness training was well done in family therapy. And both of these were pretty much killed by DSM. One other point was that the DSM focused on psychiatric problems rather than problems of everyday living. So assertiveness training for people in general doesn't require, shouldn't require having a psychiatric diagnosis. It's not necessarily a psychiatric problem. Yes, I think it's that second point 
that I've always felt was was the key point. I haven't thought of, of the uh, the other point you made, which is, is kind of interesting. But the second point that there's no DSM category for assertiveness, I know that quite well. How do I know that? I was funded by the NIMH and I was doing research on assertiveness. And then I got a site visit from one of the staff members who you know, Barry Wolf. Uh, he visited me and he said, Marv, I'm afraid, this was in the 80s, uh, I'm afraid uh, we can't fund your research anymore. And I said, why? He said, well, the priority is to deal with real patients having the diagnostic problems and assertiveness is not. Yeah, it's kind of the, med- the more general way of looking at this is that psychotherapy got medicalized, which made sense in one way. But on the other hand, it meant that you had to have a diagnosis to get psychotherapy, which makes no sense because psychotherapy can be very helpful for lots of people who don't have a psychiatric problem. Yeah. No, I've struggled with this for many years. Um, I would stand before a class of graduate students and say, psychotherapy involves a relearning. Uh, Sometimes it's behavioral learning, sometimes it's cognitive learning, sometimes it's emotional learning. It's not to to, to treat diseases. And I'd say that's the way to think about it. And then hypocritically, I would sign off on an insurance form with the DSM diagnosis. So uh, this is my little dirty secret. I hope you don't tell anybody. And parenthetically, that's why coaching has become so popular. Yeah. Because it's not it's outside the medical rubric and people don't have to have a diagnosis to have coaching. It's paid for usually out of pocket and it's usually short term. Yeah. And uh, for, for lots of people who don't really have a psychiatric disorder, but do need psychotherapy, the route that they're going through is coaching rather than psychotherapists. And I think yeah. that's unfortunate in a way, because it should be that psychotherapists feel comfortable treating patients who don't have a psychiatric diagnosis. Yeah. It's a double-edged sword, clearly. Um, a, a colleague of mine whose specialty was in autism, when there was this increase <clears throat> in the number of kids that were diagnosed as being autistic and they changed the criteria. He said it was done so that more kids would qualify for treatment. Even more for school services. In school services, yes. Yes. So it's a it's a very, very tricky kind of uh, thing. Uh, okay, I've lost my place. Where were we? Oh, we were talking about, you know, why it, it fell from use. Um, so part was the NIMH, part was the DSM, part was the group and family therapy fell from use. And I guess also part was people moved on to a more cognitive approach that didn't focus as much on behavioral interventions. Well, that's an interesting kind of stuff because in the 70s, the question that many of us had is when people become more assertive, is it because they've learned behaviorally to become more assertive or is it because they've changed their cognitions and we give them permission? And of course it's both. Boy, you say that so quickly. It took us like a year and a half to, to, to come up <laughs> with that answer. <laughs> this is, this was a, a study 
Marsha Linehan was a postdoc at Stony Brook, and she and I did a study on this together, which we published, uh, comparing the two, uh, and also, and we found that it's both. <laughs> we also we also varied, uh, but not very systematically, the gender of the therapist, because people were saying that assertiveness training should only be done by a female therapist, not a male therapist. And we found no differences between the two. But, but then again, the, it was an artificial situation. People were entered into the research because they wanted to increase their assertiveness. So the goal was set even before they began the therapy. And if there was going to be any kind of bias, it probably would have been the bias in selecting the therapeutic goal of assertiveness or, or uh, not assertiveness. But anyway, we found both. Uh, what was the idea behind preferring female therapists for assertiveness training? What was the idea? What was the theory behind why it would be better to have female therapists? Well, probably they were role models, mm. you know. I mean, there is this notion that many therapists have is that it's all in the relationship. There's a, a, a Twitter poll that is currently running right now as we speak where I've asked this is, what is, the what is the primary role of the therapy relationship? To provide a corrective experience, to set a context for techniques to be used or both. A little bit more than half of the people said both, but a very large, about a third said that the primary role is it provides the corrective experience. And I think the, there isn't the recognition that there are techniques that can do that. You, you asked that so unassertively, Marvin. We're going to have to do a little assertiveness training with you. You don't have to be so nice. I was just trying to be polite. <laughs> you know, sometimes you could be... I'm not used to that in my life. Some, well, here's the thing. Sometimes you can be assertive because you can choose to be assertive or you can choose to say nothing. So while we were doing this research on assertiveness, and my whole life was about assertiveness, I was in the bank and this, and I was much, much younger then, and this old woman came and, and said, I, I'm in, in a, in a, in a, in a uh, I, I need to get ahead of you. And I thought, okay, what do I do now? What does our therapeutic guideline say? Be assertive with her. And I said, no, I choose not to. So it's not that I'm submissive. I've just made a choice not to do that. Another anecdote while we were doing this, this is, this is kind of interesting. It just shows you the length to which I will persist on something. Uh, I had a habit of um, working at home in the morning and then coming in to Stony Brook and parking in the faculty lot and then teaching my courses. So I'm driving in and there's a university police says, I'm sorry, the, the, the lot is full. And I'm seeing cars pulling out in empty spots. And I said, well, I'm a faculty person. I have a course to teach. Sorry, the lot is full. I said, no, there are, there are empty spaces there. She said, I said, the lot is full. And then she called for backup help. And I was surrounded by police. <laughs> and I just took down their badge numbers. 
And eventually we went to court and I won the case. <laughs> so you can't make an inference as to Actually, what you're a lot more assertive than I am, Marvin. But, but I was okay. So I was being polite when I asked you. Right. I mean, I think I'm much less polite, but probably also less assertive. Okay. Um, one of the things <coughs> I think that's important to know, even though assertiveness in its original form has disappeared from the scene, Marshall Linehan in DBT has a coping module as part of DBT called Interpersonal Effectiveness, which was based, and her manual is based on the manual much revised, the manual we used in our study in the 70s. And actually, it's a very nice way of putting it. It's a better way of putting it, I think. However, the problem is, if you want to do look at the research on this, you will look up interpersonal assertiveness. You will look up interpersonal effectiveness, not assertiveness. So there are these years of clinical reports and research studies in the literature that will never be seen because of the key word. Unless somebody goes and and um, builds in a um, a thesaurus, but I think interpersonal. The thing I like about it is that interpersonal effectiveness makes clear that it doesn't mean being a bully. It doesn't mean being impolite. It it means standing up for yourself in a way that's appropriate to that particular situation, the person you're dealing with, your needs. It means not being aggressive. It means being able to to get things done. Right. To be able to, to, to master your environment yeah. when that's the appropriate thing to do. It, it means standing up for yourself without putting the other person down. Exactly. So when communication training, you talk about I statements rather than you statements. Uh, we don't call it assertiveness. We call it communication training. The goal of which is to increase interpersonal effectiveness. So here we're, we're playing the... Uh, the uh, jogging game when the phenomenon is uh, is, is very very clear. I, I think also that one one of the values of assertiveness training is that it's also behaviorally activating. That the exercises that will be part of assertiveness training get people to do more and to try things they haven't pr previously tried doing, and that leads to, to virtuous cycles. Um, someone who would be afraid to leave the house and afraid of interpersonal contacts, socially phobic. If you get them to, say, take a tennis lesson, that changes the whole world. To just the, the ability to go there, to sign up, to find a partner to play with, uh, being able to do one little thing that you couldn't do before often expands the beachhead and pretty soon you can do lots of things yeah. that you couldn't do before. So the virtual cycle set up by yeah. anything that gets the person to be out there more and the service training is certainly inevitably going to be doing that. It, it's a demonstration that you can make a difference even though you didn't think you could beforehand. Kind of and like a foot. Make a difference in one sphere of life with exactly. one person. It, I think more than most things, assertiveness training generalizes from one experience to another, from one person to another. So the question is, what is assertiveness training? And there that, there lots, next week. I think that's next week. Uh, next is, week. There are lots of different more theory. That'll be more practice. Okay. So if anyone who is watching or listening would like to 
read more about some of this stuff, there's an article that uh, a couple of graduate students and I wrote uh, talking about some of the things that we've been discussing here and some of the research that's been done with a few clinical vignettes. But I think next time we'll get more into the clinical stuff. Why don't you say what, what, where that paper is? Where, how can they find it? Um, it will be appearing as we speak magically um, when um, our uh, producer, Alan, puts this together. Oh, so it's a, it's a paper in progress. No, it's not a paper in progress. It's, it's, just, it's a link that I will send to Alan, who will then put oh, up okay, on the great, screen. Great. So it'll appear on the screen. or Perfect. Which, oh, which I'm assuming now is appearing on the screen, or Good. I don't know what Good. happens with Spotify. But anyway, enough of this. Okay, have a good week, Marvin. You too, and um, choose to be assertive. And you should be continue to be polite. <laughs> Stay <Yeah>. safe. Bye-bye. <laughs> Bye-bye.